This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create a professional website, blog, portfolio, or an online store. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase on new accounts, go to squarespace.com slash trek and use offer code TREK5. You're listening to Trek FM. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Literary Treks, our dedicated Star Trek books and comics podcast. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me, as always, is Matthew Rushing. Matthew, it is great to be back with you on Literary Treks. We had a couple of weeks off for various things. It feels like ages since we've done this show. It does, Chris. And, you know, the craziest part is that I've finally gotten out of the darkness and I'm in that after darkness and goodness, it's really dark after dark. Crazy. <laughs> I, I I had a really hard time getting here, uh, kind of like swimming through the, you know, ether of black and I've made my way finally back to the podcasting desk and the palatial uh, studios here for Trek FM, Dallas, Fort Worth headquarters, and finally made it. So glad to be back. Good, good. Yeah, you know, you think nothing could be darker than darkness, but then you find the after darkness, and it's just—I don't know. It's like it's like beyond pitch black, right? It's yeah, it's something, Chris. It's not something I want to experience again. So um, I was able to find one of those palm lamps, though, that, you know, they have in all the Star Trek series The the worst, you know, kind of lighting source that you can have that literally takes your whole hand to hold while you have the other hand hold a phaser. (laughs) I, I don't know. I mean, really, that's Starfleet engineering. That's the future. It doesn't even look like a flashlight anymore that fits comfortably in my hand. It's this weird, like, box that I have to hold. I don't get that. So, yeah. Anyway, I found one of those, and uh, so I've got some illumination now in this room. But, uh, whew, after darkness, it's crazy, folks. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, we're not going to talk about Into Darkness or After Darkness on today's show, but uh, we are going to talk a little bit about Dust, which can make things a little bit dark, and that's our first news story, which is the cover to David R. George III's entry in the fall series, Revelation and Dust. And Matthew, this cover gives us our first glimpse at the rebuilt Deep Space Nine station. It does. Um, This is something that when we talked to David, um, I was trying to get something out of him about what this was going to look like, and, um, you know, he wouldn't tell us anything. He, He was good. And, uh, but I, you know, it looks very much like a Starfleet built Deep Space Nine, um, in the sense that it has a lot of the same sensibilities. It has a big fusion type core at the bottom. It's, it's got, um, 
rings um, connected by walkways in between those rings. It has pylons, um, but those pylons go all the way to the top and they connect. Uh, So it reminds me very much of some of the artwork we saw um, in the, um, you know, making Far Beyond the Stars. uh, that far beyond the stars, yes, it, uh, it looks like bit. a little bit like that. Yeah. Um, but I was thinking about some of the artwork that Herman Zimmerman had had when they were trying to design okay, yeah. the Deep Space Nine, and they had so many sketches. Yeah. This one looks very familiar because they had they had ha- talked about having a station that connected at the top, um, and then they had had somebody cut that out on the top and the bottom. And that's how they came up with Deep Space Nine. So, right. um, yeah, but I like this. I think it's really cool. And then there's this there's this view screen behind this huge saucer section of the um, galaxy class here. It looks like there's this massive um, arboretum inside the, the middle dome. Um, so that's that's really cool looking. Yeah, it could be. I hadn't thought about that looking at it. I was trying to figure out what that was. Yeah. I was thinking maybe it was, you just said view screen. I was thinking maybe it's it's a giant view screen on the outside of the station where they can sell ad space oh, because yeah. the Federation is getting into product placement. So yeah. when ships come by, you know, they can they can sell ads. And of course, you know, Quark oh, is going to find a way to hijack that yep. and promote his own products out into the Bajoran space. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for that commercial to show up. Uh, right there with Quark, you know, <laughs> telling you to come and stop at Deep Space Nine and come to Quark's, Absolutely. you know. Um, and that would be great. Next thing you know, you're going to go by and you're going to see ads for Star Trek Into Darkness, you know, coming out, Stardate, <laughs> you know. <laughs> that would be funny. That would be like... Um... My wife and I were watching How I Met Your Mother. We we finally got Blu-rays for the fourth season because Japanese TV just kind of decided they were never going to show it again after the third season. And they're talking about Star Wars. Oh, yes. And they say, she hasn't seen Star Wars? The only people in the universe who haven't seen Star Wars are the characters in Star Wars. And that's because they lived the Star Wars. And so I'm picturing <laughs> exactly. like these Federation ships going by and seeing this ad for Star Trek Into Darkness on the side of the Deep Space Nine station. And they're thinking, you know, we, we're living the Star Treks. Yeah. We're warping we into that. darkness right now. I just, this is weird. <laughs> yeah, this is a, but this is really cool. I, I, this isn't uh, finalized, David said on his Facebook page. Um, there could be some changes to it, but this is pretty close to final. Um, and, yeah. uh, so it was just great that, uh, pocket decided, uh, and CBS decided, look, we're going to let the artist for the cover of this book, give us a new deep space nine. Cause I think we were all clamoring for it, you know, in the book community. Um, those of us who really enjoy this. So, and I like it. I, yeah. I think it, 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 well, it's really cool. It it reminds me, it has that Federation Starfleet sensibility and the color scheme and such, but yet, it definitely echoes the previous Deep Space Nine station. You've got the central core coming down below the station. And it looks kind of like a cross between Starfleet architecture, Cardassian architecture, and something out of 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yes, it definitely also has that 2001, or I was going to say, you know, what we talked about, the that far beyond the stars, 50s type sensibility that, to it of what space right. would look like. And so exactly, yeah. that, you know, is a, is a big, you know, just 
kind of sci-fi junkie and all those kind of old serials and stuff. I really like this. It's it's a nice homage to those kind of things. Yeah, it is very cool. So this book is scheduled to be released on August 27th. So we've got uh, just a few more months and then we can find out for sure what the final cover is going to be like. I'm sure we'll see it well before the 27th of August. But in the book itself, we'll get to learn a lot more about this um, really cool new Deep Space Nine station. Next, uh, we got some great news about the upcoming uh, Michael A. Martin McCoy book that's going to be coming out sometime in June or July. Now, uh, there aren't any listings for this just yet, but uh, Chris, what did Michael tell the G&T show about this latest book? Well, he said that the majority of this book is going to be early during The Wrath of Khan, so kind of between scenes in The Wrath of Khan, and um, that's uh, pretty much what we know so far about it, uh, Dr. McCoy and... Um, Wrath of Khan time period. Yeah, this should be interesting. Uh, you know, um, mainly because I don't feel like we we don't see a lot of bones in this time period. You know, he didn't really want to be back after the motion picture. I mean, he wasn't really excited about being called back. He had to shave off that awesome beard, give up the leisure suit, um, and so. I, well, I mean, would you want to come back if if you had an awesome beard and a leisure suit and a gold medallion and a. Pimp Kane. I mean, would you want to come back to Starfleet, or would you want to, you know, keep hanging out like he was doing? Well, yeah, give up your mint juleps and your yeah. I mean, <laughs> goodness. Um, yeah, this will. I think this will be really good. I, I really enjoyed, obviously, the the latest novella that we had by James Swallow, um, and I'm glad that it seems like Pocket is decided to continue this trend of giving us one of these every few months. Uh, because they're fun little vignettes into uh, the characters. And, and it's a great way to really focus on one character at a time uh, and just tell a complete story for them. And so um, I can't wait, actually, to read this. I, I really enjoy um, Bones as a character in the first place. And so, Excellent, yes. So uh, watch for that coming out sometime this summer. And hopefully, maybe by next show, we'll have more news about the actual release date. We'll find out. Keep our eyes open. Um, so next, Matthew, Alan Dean Foster did an interview, and he was asked, what is at the heart of Star Trek Into Darkness? And I thought that he gave a great answer here. Um, he was just talking about that for him and for good writing, he feels like in good stories, it really needs to be centered on your characters. Uh, and... Uh, Everything else, however well-developed, is just the window dressing for telling a story about your characters. And he felt like um, Into Darkness, if anything, was just a more character-centric film than the previous one, which, after seeing it, I, I, I definitely agree. Um, this film doesn't give you that kind of, oh, we have to do the origin story, so we have so much other things to worry right. about. This, we can really just drop in and pick up where our characters left off and move them forward. And so... I really yeah, that's the that. thing. I mean, as you know, I haven't seen the film yet. It doesn't open in Japan until August 23rd. And, Star Trek um, into August! Star Trek into August! Japan rules! <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I will get into the press screening. I don't know when that will take place, though. Probably late June, early July. Um, but what I will say here is that you can look at the 2009 movie and think, well, it was character-centric because... 
so much of it was about the characters and we meet Kirk and Spock and so, but like you said, so much of it was origin. It was just introducing the characters. And to me, that's not really character centric. That's because we're not really delving into the characters themselves. We're just saying, here's James T. Kirk. Here's Spock. Here's Uhura. This is how they met each other. And by the time they all get together, we're, you know, more than halfway through the movie. And so, then uh, you have to go on and, and fight Nero. So um, I'll take your word for it that Into Darkness is more character-centric and that I'll find out when I when I finally see the film. But I do agree with uh, Alan here that to be Star Trek, it really does need to be character-centric. Well, the other thing that it was really neat about um, him writing this book, they, they just asked him about the process and, and what access he had to or see Kurtzman and, and Damon Lindelof when writing the novelization, or if all he had was just the script. And what I thought was really cool is that uh, he got to start with the script, um, but uh, also the case with the previous film, he, he really got to uh, be able to see the film as it was being made and edited, and he worked to the end to make sure that he knew the latest changes all the way up so he had to work really hard. He said that definitely not his favorite thing as an author to have to do. But as a fan, he really wanted this book to reflect what you see in you know the film. Um, and uh, of course, there's always going to be, you know, he gets to embellish a little bit because he can tell you some things that they might not be able to do in the movie. Um, but that he wanted this to be uh, as close to the experience as somebody, you know, seeing the film and this finished product Mm -hmm. so i think that's really cool getting especially access to be able to sit down with these guys and talk to them and really pick their brains about some things so they didn't just lock him in a room chained to a table with a copy of the script uh that was also chained to a table and then uh kick him out after 12 hours or anything like that yeah i guess we have heard stories about uh i'm exaggerating of course but we have heard stories about how strict the studios can be with scripts when they are asking authors to write novelizations that is very true but um you know he said the other great thing about this is that um you can communicate so quickly in this this internet age Uh, you get that opportunity to be in touch a lot with with the, the people that you're working with um, and again, you know, it made it hard for him as an author trying to rewrite things at the last minute, but he feels like as a fan that this is completely worth it. So I'm very excited. Yeah. I, I got the audio book actually the, today, Chris, and uh, I'll be listening to it the, throughout the weekend uh, as I'm doing things. And so be writing that review up soon. Um, but I'm also interested just to see, you know, I didn't read the last one. Um, I didn't read the novelization of Star Trek. But I am interested to see if uh, Alan was able to add anything to the book to kind of uh, flesh out maybe Harrison, uh, flesh out any of the other characters like Carol or Admiral Marcus or any of these kind of peripheral characters or even Keenzer. I'm I'm hoping to have a whole chapter just devoted to Keenzer and his thoughts. Is there any truth to the rumor that Alan provided all the sound effects for the audio book? by sitting in the room with Alice and just making noises with his mouth as she recorded. 
I think that's true. I mean, it, I feel bad for <laughs> Alice, you know, sitting there in her, her skivvies reading and Alan's doing the sounds back over in the quarter. Uh, what was w- weirder is that Keenzer was just sitting up on top of a bench and every once in a while, Alan just yells, get down. So it, it's just, it's an awkward recording. I mean, I've lived into a little bit of it and every five minutes you just hear, get down. It It's odd. <laughs> You, you'd think they would edit that out, but I th- I it's funnier it though. With it, you know, it adds just to yeah, it. it really is. It's funnier. Um, it does kind of ruin the mood of some of the points of the book, but eh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right. Well, uh, yeah, this is available now, both uh, in print on uh, Kindle Nook and also audio format on CD as well as from Audible. So if you're interested in the novelization. And the audio version read by Alice Eve. You can go pick that up. I'm definitely going to pick up the audio version myself, but I will wait until after I have seen the film. Oh, Matthew, um, what do we have up in comic news this week? I think we have a few things going on, especially after having a couple of weeks off from the show here. We do, and this was pretty exciting. Um, Mike Johnson was interviewed by Wired Magazine about what's going to be coming up. Uh, for Star Trek comics after Darkness. And, of course, uh, we do know that they were going to be doing a um, a follow-up series that will be happening right after the film. And um, he says that uh, from what you see in the first page of the story is very much a sequel in terms to the plot. The, the idea that the things in this movie just cannot be ignored and to move forward, you kind of have to let those uh, repercussions play out over the months to come. And so I really like that they are using these comics to continue on that story that we are seeing in the films and, and just slowly kind of cracking open the door for this universe. And, you know, Chris, we've, we've both been reading these from the beginning really seeing that happen, you know, starting out with the direct homages basically to episodes and then slowly but surely kind of creating their own course. And so the, I'm really glad that they're doing that. And um, it it just makes me excited to read Star Trek comics. To me, just the fact that Wired Magazine would actually do an interview about Star Trek and comics I think shows how much um, renewed interest in Star Trek we're seeing as a result of the J.J. films. Whether you like the films or not, Star Trek is once again something that uh, mainstream media is talking about. Well, and one of the cool things he said, too, is, you know, uh, two of the things going forward in this, you're going to get all new worlds uh, and stories that expand the galaxy that we know. But second, we're going to get a larger epic story about the clashish civilizations. And he says he's not just talking about the Klingons versus the Federation. Uh, He says uh, a map of Star Trek galaxy is divided into established empires and the great unknown. And he really wants to be able to explore both in the comics. So getting a chance to maybe see some of these other races that we haven't seen yet. We, we've talked about the Andorians, Tellarites, all those kind of things. I would love to see that interpretation in the comics. But I'd also love to see, you know, um, the Enterprise explore some of the great unknown uh, of space and them create some new races or things to explore. 
I'm looking forward to the issue where they tell that untold story um, about conflict between worlds. You know, you said not just the Federation and Klingons, because everyone knows there's a conflict there all through Star Trek. But there's the unknown one between the Edo and the Rysians. It was called the War of Excessive Sensuality. And it's it's one I've always wanted to know about. You know, we make those trips to Ryza. Uh, we, we run around with the Edo. Uh, sometimes we jump in their flower beds. We're not supposed to, I know, but to be careful with that. Yeah. I, I just want to know more about that conflict. Well, and it was a, wow, it was a excellent conflict. I mean, as conflicts go, this was the <laughs> one you wanted to be a part of. Um, it, it's, you know, I don't know if New Kirk would actually ever leave either of these planets once he finds them. Um, and so, um, yeah, wow. Uh, if they get embroiled in that mess, um, Kirk may be the most, you know, prolific father ever. Um, he, he just, Ooh. yeah, I have a feeling that he, he may father a few children in this this excessive sensuality conflict. Um <laughs> Goodness, uh, kind Chris, of hard I, to say, isn't it? I think I think you've just created a whole different after darkness comic series here for adults. <laughs> Maybe we need to produce that one ourselves. Hmm, that's a good idea. <laughs> it's the oh, next project man. for Trek FM. <laughs> yes, um, I'm going to get Shar on that. I feel like uh, we should get Shar on this. Maybe we can get Shar to write it, and we can get our friend Sean Taranjo, who's a fantastic comic artist, to draw it, and there we go. Okay. Yeah, and, and you and I can write the stories. <laughs> of course, with Shar as a creative director. Exactly, right? and editor. And editor, yeah. of course. So, All right, well, what else do we have up in comics? Now, we have... Um, August solicitations, Star Trek 24, which is, of course, going to be the After Darkness stuff continuing on, I guess, isn't it? So 21 starts the story. Is that right? 21, 22, mm-hmm. 23, and then, After Darkness. Exactly. And then this would be the last part of that. And uh, actually, 24 is going to involve some of the things that you saw in the video game. So if you've played the video game yeah. with the Gorn... Uh, Apparently, the Gorn are going to show up in this comic. So it says, beware the Gorn. I'm not sure how this is all going to play together. I haven't played the video game yet. Um, And uh, so, but that's exciting. Finally, the Gorn are going to show up in in this um, comic series, even though they look a lot like dinosaurs. Yes, that's the thing. I don't like these Gorn. I... It's it's like turning the Gorn into uh, monster movie creatures. Um, you know, I don't I don't like the Gorn that we saw in Enterprise that fought Archer. It was too much of like a, a creature instead of a sentient race. Like we, you know, we only see the Gorn in Arena on TOS, and then we hear about the Gorn. But in Star Trek Online, the Gorn are allied with. The, the Klingons, and of course in the novels, the Gorn are allied with uh, other groups as well. And there you get the feeling of the Gorn as being more of the um, another race within the Star Trek universe, you know, like the Klingons or the Romulans or the Breen or whoever they are. 
And here the Gorn are being presented a lot more like just, like you said, these dinosaur creatures. And I don't know, I'm not a big fan of that personally as a Star Trek fan. Yeah, you know, um, the only thing I don't like about the Enterprise Gorn is just the way that it's rendered. It's just a very bad effect. Um, I liked what they did with the character. I liked the idea that they were going with. They just needed to spend more time to make it look more realistic. Otherwise, that's kind of in my head what I always extrapolated that the Gorn might actually look like how they might actually move if it wasn't just Bobby Clark in a rubber suit, you know, on Vasquez Rocks, where it's 100,000 degrees. I, I've so. always thought that the entire Gorn race was just made up of Bobby Clark clones. That's at least how I like to think of it. And they're all really slow moving. <laughs> like that? Yeah. Just like that. Now the listeners are going, what the hell just happened to my iPod? <laughs> Sorry, a little interference they're checking, there. They're checking, it, they're checking yeah. their, their headphone jack and the wire going in. It's my pet Gorn. <laughs> I apologize. He, he was not behaving, um, but uh, I put him in his yeah. place. Uh, I, I, I threw him a puppy. He's good. <laughs> Well, we'll have to wait anyway for this one, and we'll find out what they're going to do with the Gorn, how it's going to play into the comics, and um, hopefully they'll do something with it other than just make them monsters. Um, I I would think that they would in the comic. I mean, in the video game, you can just make them monsters, and hey, it works because you're first-person shooting everything, but um, in the comic book, there must be more to the story. Uh, The next comic, though, is something that we do know a bit more about. This is Star Trek... Best of Klingons. Now, this is... We've had a series of these best of so-and-so alien race comics come out, and this is going to be another one of these 100-page. And the cover here, they show us some of the various different incarnations of Klingons that we've seen through Star Trek. Yeah, this is interesting. It's got, um, you know, all three races of Klingons that we have seen... um, and uh, so I'm always excited to go back and just see what Star Trek comics were like. And this is actually part of a DC series um, and when they were doing original series comics back in the day. And so um, that's always exciting as well. You know, having a major comic developer doing um, Star Trek comics is, is very interesting to me back then that it was so popular that you know somebody like DC would want to say, oh, we're gonna we're gonna do Star Trek comics, and so um, this should be really interesting to be able to go back and and read this, and hopefully well, when we do some more comics, we'll pick this up sometime. And I'm crossing my fingers that it'll be better than the Voyager comics that we stumbled into, Chris. <laughs> hey, come on, Avalon Rising, it's the best comic ever. Holographic <sighs> Doctor riding a horse in a medieval village. You know, what can um, get better than that, Matthew? You're right. It, it was a fantastic, <laughs> uh, fantastic episode of, of comic um, wizardry. Uh, I can't imagine um, anything better than Joan of Arc, Janeway, um, and uh, wow, you're you're right, Chris. How, how dare I? <laughs> um, anyway, <clears throat> listeners, Star Trek is also going to be doing something really fun. It's called A Hundred Penny Presses, and um, it's going to return. You're going to get the dollar version of critical IDW books. 
And first up, what are we going to get for Star Trek, Chris? Uh, well, we're going to get ongoing number one, the um, beginning of the series that started to flesh out the Abrams verse post 2009 and uh, led us into Into Darkness. So, um, you know, if you haven't read that one yet, it'll be a great way for you to pick up the first copy for just a dollar and find out what you think about it. Yeah, this is great. So if you haven't gotten into these comics yet and you've always wanted to, you just want to pick one up, be able to figure out whether you'll like it. This is a great way to do it for a dollar. You really can't go wrong. And um, I would say, too. Number one is not even the best comic in this series. So if you pick up number one, you think, ah, it's okay. Keep going. I really don't think that you will be sorry. Yeah, you need to keep going because um, you have to get three or four issues in before things really start to diverge. Um, You know, my reaction to ongoing, the early issues of ongoing was like, okay, well, it's kind of fun, but, you know, you're telling me episodes that, I already watched on TOS and there's not much difference here except that these are the Abrams versions of our characters instead of the Roddenberry versions. But then it starts to really branch off and uh, they do some pretty interesting things in the comics. So great way to jump into it for uh, for next to nothing and to see what you think about it. Um, I'm curious if they will put this available digitally for 99 cents. Uh, but uh, it doesn't really say right now. It may only be a print thing that you can pick up in the stores, and it's supposed to land in stores on August 7th. Well, Chris, we got some really exciting news. Um, I I saw this today, uh, and I was kind of jumping up and down because it's something that uh, I'd been thinking about after seeing Into Darkness, and Robert Orsi tweeted that we're going to get something special uh, with IDW in the following months uh, to come in, uh, starting in the fall, we're going to get great miniseries. Chris, tell everybody what that's going to be. Okay, well, this is really odd to me because, um, you know, when I think of Star Trek and I think of Into Darkness, uh, the first thing that comes to my mind isn't the Beatles, but it says here that they're going to be doing a whole series, a four-part series, exploring the character of George Harrison. And no, no, Chris, that's, am I reading that wrong, Matthew? Yeah, uh, not George Harrison. Um, you know, the the Beatle did did not come back to life um, in the twenty third oh. century. It's John Harrison that we'll be getting. John Harrison. Exactly. I told you I haven't seen the movie yet, so I was just a little confused. No, I I completely understand. It, it makes sense, um, and so. Don't feel bad. I do think this is great, though, um, to get some of the background here for John Harrison, um, see where he comes from and all those kind of things. I'm being vague here, folks, because Chris has not seen the film. Um, So this should be fantastic. All right. So, yeah, so that's going to come out. and It will be in addition to the After Darkness sequel. So you can kind of get a well, the the uh, Countdown to Darkness was a prequel to the movie, so this is kind of like a prequel prequel, I guess, in a sense, and then you're also going to get After Darkness as your sequel. Now, Matthew, before we jump into the feature, let's take a moment and tell our listeners about our sponsor, Squarespace. Now, Squarespace is 
Absolutely. The best platform for creating a personal website, a blog, a portfolio, or an online store. I've been using Squarespace for five or six years now. I swear by this platform. And what I love about them is that they are constantly updating the platform with new features and new designs and even more support options. And they give you so many beautiful designs to start with. And it's incredibly easy for you to put together a website. One of the neat things, Chris, of the way the website's designed as well is that it'll look great on any device. So you know how important it is to have your website, your blog, any of the things that you're doing online to look good, not only on somebody's computer where they might have a huge screen to be able to see the site, but also on an iPad or say an iPhone or an Android device. You really want that site to really pop when somebody sees it, even on their small iPhone screen. And so this is one of the things I really like about Squarespace as well, because you have a fantastic site on any device. Absolutely. That's what they call responsive design. And I was just showing that to my wife actually yesterday because I'm working on a site that's based on Squarespace. And we, we were working on the site in the browser and she was seeing what it looks like on my large display. And then I pulled out my iPad and I pulled out my iPhone and I, I opened it on all three of these devices at the same time. And she was amazed at, at how well the Squarespace system reflows the site and especially how the menu system works on a smartphone and and how it uh, breaks it down into a little menu link that you tap and then you have access to the site's full menu uh, and it looks great you know it's none of that pinching and zooming stuff that you sometimes have to do on sites just to figure out you know how to navigate around so that is fantastic and the way that you build those sites is one of the true joys of using squarespace Using a system of blocks, you can actually assemble a page by just dragging different types of contents onto your page. And then Squarespace automatically locks those into a grid. And, and I use the word lock, but, but don't mistake that for being you know, a rigid design and, and a very basic website. It just does the layout organization for you so that what you really think about is just the content and how you want to make your website look. There are fantastic controls behind the scenes that you have access to. You can modify the look and feel of your site, the widths, the typefaces, the uh, the sizes of your headers, and everything using sliders, just entering digits, sizes for the fonts. It's super easy and it really takes all of the hard parts of building a website out of the picture and, and makes great web design accessible to really anyone. Well, and I think this is one of the really nice things, Chris, is because Squarespace really cares about design. And all of the templates are, are extremely clean. And they really allow you to take that content that you've put on the site and have that be the focus and not necessarily the website itself. Um, you know, I, and for me, you know, I really don't like when I go to a website and it's just really cluttered and Squarespace really understands this idea of design and how, you know, when you go to the, a certain type of website and it just pops out and everything is very easy to find that's really what Squarespace helps you do. Take your content and make that the focus. Absolutely. Yeah. If you care about design, if you want to make things easy on your readers, Squarespace is perfect starting point for that. 
Uh, and then, as I said, you can modify it and make it your own. You know, no two Squarespace sites look alike. And, and that's actually very true. And the other thing that they make really easy for you to do is to get that content out of your website to the world. You know, these days, it's really not enough to just put content on your website. It's great to have a website, but people aren't going to find it unless you let them know it's there. And so using Facebook, using Twitter, using Pinterest, Instagram, Google, there are so many ways these days to connect with everyone through social media. And Squarespace lets you connect your accounts with your site and automatically push your content out as you make a new post. You can take any page on your website and you can share it on your Facebook page. The connected accounts features of Squarespace are incredibly easy to use and they make sure that all the time that you do put into creating content results in people coming to your site and reading your content, looking at your artwork, purchasing your products, it really makes your website the most effective tool, both for your personal branding or your business branding. Well, and this is one of the nice things uh, that they do as well, is that uh, they give you this great calendar feature that enables you to have all of your events and you can put those, uh, especially if you have a, a, sm a small shop with live events and workshops, if you're a musician and you're on tour, uh, you can share your schedule with others, with your fans. Uh, I think this is a really neat thing that Squarespace does and allows it to be something that's simple and easy to use and, and, and not overly complicated. And to, For me, I'm not a web savant, so there's nothing I hate worse than, than having to really spend hours trying to figure out these kind of things. And the Squarespace makes it simple and easy for anybody to be able to figure out and to use in, in just a few moments. Yeah, the calendar is a really nice new feature. They've added quite a few new features just over the past month. And the calendar one is excellent. Other features they've added are the ability to duplicate pages in an easier way. You can restore deleted collections. So if you put your images into galleries and you build collections, uh, you know, Squarespace has a great revisions tracking system and they make it easy for you to restore things even if you have deleted them. And, and that's a great safety net. Uh, you know, I really appreciate those kinds of features because um, I don't have to use them very often. But, you know, we all make mistakes. We all change our minds sometimes. And it's great to be able to roll back when you need to. You can also send forms to multiple locations using the built-in form builder in Squarespace. And there are two new templates as well. There's Adirondack and Momentum. One is great for a store. One is great for a photo-centric blog. And uh, those are added to the many wonderful templates that they already have there in Squarespace. And best of all, it doesn't cost you very much. The pricing is amazing. It's just $8 a month for the standard package, $16 a month for the unlimited package, and $24 per month for the business package, which, which gives you the incredible commerce features that tie into Stripe that can allow you to set up an online store and start processing credit cards and handle customer orders and shipping very easily in just a matter of minutes. And they'll even give you a free domain registration when you sign up for the annual or semi-annual plans. And we would love for you to try this out for free. Squarespace has a great offer for Trek FM listeners. You can get 10% off your purchase on new accounts and you can try it free for 14 days and you have access to all the features of Squarespace and there's no credit card required. Just go to squarespace.com slash Trek 
you just give them a name and email address. They'll create a trial site for you. You can use all the features. You can import your existing site from WordPress, Blogger, or other platforms. See what it's like. And after 14 days, when you decide to sign up, and I know you will, you just enter offer code TREK5, and that will get you 10% off your lifetime purchase on new accounts. And, and uh, you know, choose the annual plan. Get that free domain registration. There's really no easier way to set up a website, a blog, a portfolio, an online store. It's all there for you at Squarespace. So uh, give them a try. We know you'll love them. You'll be supporting our sponsor and helping us bring this programming to you every week. Well, Chris, tonight we're going to talk about the next book in the Deep Space Nine relaunch. We have completed Avatar 1 and 2, and uh, we have both gotten a chance to reread Abyss, which is actually the third book in the Section 31 miniseries that they did, but it also coincided with the Deep Space Nine relaunch books. And this book really does uh, a great job of uh, focusing on one of my favorite characters, Julian Bashir, and diving into his genetically enhanced Ness, uh, as well as continuing on the storyline that we've already been progressing through the quote-unquote season eight of Deep Space Nine. Um, so just was going to ask, you know, we've both read this before, uh, and so coming back to the book now, after all those years, I mean, this was 2001, uh, the last time that I read this, honestly, uh, what did you think just going back? Did it, did it live up to what you remembered? Was it better? Was it worse? Yeah. Like you said, it's been a long time. I, I picked this book up, I believe it was in 2002. I used to have it in paperback and I didn't remember much about this book actually. So rereading it was, um, quite a refresher for me in terms of the story and and such. Uh, I always find Section 31 kind of a fascinating concept within Star Trek because it's the kind of thing that, you know, the way the Federation is set up, the way Starfleet is set up, you're kind of supposed to think that the future is free, at least from a humanity standpoint, that the future is free of this kind of shadowy behind the scenes activity going on with your government. And you know that that's probably not the case. And in reality, there, I think, always will be some kind of organization like Section 31. And Deep Space Nine did a good job of of portraying Section 31, of tying Bashir to it, of tying some of the themes of this book into section 31. So it was, it was fun to see that again, to go into that world of kind of behind the scenes Federation activity. And uh, at the same time, explore the growth of Dr. Bashir's character and also revisit some very interesting plot points from Star Trek history and the character of Khan. Yeah, I thought that, that was something that's uh, really interesting. Um, and uh, as we were doing a little bit of research before the show, just kind of looking back at when this book came out, um, Greg Cox's first Khan novel came out the same month that this book did in, in 2001. So uh, two books dealing with the ideas of uh, genetic enhancements uh, and, and um, the effect that they have on people, um, probably from do two different standpoints. You know, uh, Greg's book takes place with Khan, and, you know, Khan is definitely a huge proponent of that. It was interesting to see this neo-Khan 
and I don't mean that the political <laughs> aspect, uh, but this uh, this new con we could call it's him like in this con book. Disciple, um, I, I guess in a way. Yeah, the disciple of con, yeah. uh, we shall call him. Um, it was is very really interesting to see him come about and and get to kind of spout off a lot of the things that we think that con would say, um, and. and what I found most interesting in this book is that the very beginning, you know, uh, the station itself, uh, they've lost their fusion core because Kira had to eject it last time on Deep Space Nine. Right, which was a nice carryover from the Avatar books that when we start the story, the core is still gone and they're still trying to deal with yep. what happened. So they're running on reserve power. Uh, half the station is empty because people have left because they can't uh, create enough power with the generators they have going. Well, Kira um, kind of kicks people off the station too. Exactly. Like, Get out of here. I don't need and you. She's, <laughs> right. And she's trying to kick uh, Bashir and Ezri right. off. But one of the just interesting things at the start of the book, um, our, our resident Andorian, Shar, is, is noticing people. And... Um, Bashir is really happy at this point because he's kind of back to this feeling that's this frontier again. You know, there mm-hmm. the stations in shambles. Like when he first arrived, uh, everything is kind of back to being a little bit more exciting, a little bit more dangerous. Um, and then, of course, Section Thirty One shows up as him and Ezri are just about to leave on their trip back to Earth, and gives him this mission, um, and. Everything goes different for for Bashir at that point. Like his whole demeanor changes, and I think that's so interesting because you know I remember when Section Thirty One just first came around for him in the series, he was really excited about finally being a spy, right? Um, because he loves to play James Bond on the in the Hollow Suites, right? And I thought that it was also very interesting that we find out in this story that the last time that he had played spy was before. He met Section Thirty One. That he has not played that program since. Gen Zia and now and Ezri have never seen him or heard of him playing that program again. It's like he's lost his his love of being a spy. It's it's been ruined for him. Um, what I thought was really interesting was just that um, when they get to the planet for the guy they're supposed to stop, Locken. It's so interesting because he turned into the stereotypical James Bond villain. His world domination, galaxy domination. I mean, Bashir even makes a note of this, just how comical in some ways it is, except for that it's sad because he's actually believing all this. So I just thought it was interesting that uh, like all great spy novels, um your hero is faced with a villain who challenges them, you know, in, in, in the best way because it's, they're a mirror, you know, in the same way Kirk and Khan were mirrors for each other in some ways. In this book, Bashir meets his, his Khan. Right. Well, in this book, uh, you know, you compare Khan and Kirk and, and I mean, they are mirrors to each other in one way. Um, well, yeah, it's a mirror in one way, but they're also like a, 
an opposite reflection of one another. You know, we can, we've mm-hmm. talked uh, with John Tenuto on a number of our shows in the past, you know, about how the Wrath of Khan is set up as a reflection, how everything that is Kirk is inverted with Khan, you know, all the way down to the starship designs, that the Reliant is an inversion of the Enterprise. Um, but in this story, like, Dr. Bashir and Lachan are, they have the same origins, you know, they're both slow as children, they were both genetically enhanced to uh, solve these developmental problems that they had as children, and they both became doctors as well. So they kind of followed this exact same path, but at some point, because an event that took place changed them, uh, they went down different paths. And Bashir, uh, as a member of Starfleet, you know, has been able to continue to help people to work within the Starfleet framework, whereas Lachan went down this dark path following the uh, attack on the facility of New Beijing, where he had been working. Well, and it just shows, too, um, the the difference of, of the of having a, a community around you um, and, and the, the community that is around you will influence you, especially when bad things happen. Um, and so uh, who's around Lockin is, is somebody who's already at that point been steering him towards section 31. Uh, you know, uh, when things happen to Julian, who's around him, all of the people that we know on deep space nine, who, um, want him to do the right thing and really push him towards that. It makes me think of the episode um, Statistical Probabilities where he and his genetically engineered friends decide that the Federation should surrender and it takes Cisco telling him, no, we will never do that no matter what the cost. It doesn't it, because we can't let go of who we are and what we believe in. And we have to believe that what we are fighting for is is better. And, um, you know, I really think that's an interesting thing here. These two characters is that that nature nurture thing that we get with these characters and who they've been around. And that's awesome. Um, There's a lot in this book. Um, Well, let me ask you a question here. Now, you talk about statistical probabilities and because they came to the conclusion that X number of lives would be lost. I don't remember the exact number right now off the top of my head, but therefore the Federation should surrender because they can't possibly win the war. And that's something that Bashir considers. Like like looking at it purely from a mathematical standpoint, maybe it makes sense. But when you look at it that way, you know, you're not thinking about the actual people involved. You're not thinking about what that means for various cultures or what it means for your civilization. But nevertheless, you know, when he's with his friends, he can think, well, maybe that's a possibility. Maybe I should consider that. In this case, and one of the plot points of this book is uh, Bashir has to struggle with the idea of whether Lachan's plan to, and I guess we should say here, the kind of central plan of Lachan in this story as the new Khan, he actually uh, is referred to as the Khan, is to unite the Alpha Quadrant into a new federation. 
And uh, of course, he develops a whole plan of how he would do that. And he's breeding Jim Hadar. And there's a question of, is it right or wrong? Is it better for the people in the Alpha Quadrant that the Khan takes over and kind of brings about a new civilization from the ashes of the old? And he wants Bashir to do that with him. You know, they're going to rule the galaxy together, kind of like Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker. As father and son. <laughs> exactly, that's what I'm thinking. And Bashir has to think about this, and he admits that he has often lain awake in bed at night because he doesn't require much sleep, pondering many of the same questions that Lachan is raising. Now, I don't know, what was your take on that kind of internal struggle for Bashir and and whether he should really go with Lachan and whether he really may have thought this would be better overall for the Alpha Quadrant. I thought that it was actually a really interesting um, continuation of a lot of the things that we've seen with Bashir's character from the sixth and seventh season of Deep Space Nine and really continuing that refrain that there is so much about Bashir that's been hidden um, and uh, there's so much about him that we don't know or understand about what it means to be uh, genetically enhanced. And, and one of the things about this book of, of him meeting Locken is just for a little while he is with somebody who completely understands what it's like to be him, um, to be the smartest person in the room all the time. There's nobody smarter than him ever in the room. Um, and, and, you know, he can run scenarios in his head the, the, the same way, um, you know, Spock could, um, or Data could. And, and yet Bashir, uh, unlike somebody like Data or Spock has all of the, um, the human emotion to go with it. And, and that takes a toll on Bashir. Um, you know, he doesn't have the Vulcan control like Spock does. Uh, and he doesn't have the unemotionalness of data to be able to say, well, this statistic says this, but then of course he has to feel about that statistic, you know, and I thought that this was a really good book of, of really diving into the character of what it means to be genetically engineered and, and kind of in some ways for Bashir, what it, a curse it is, um, to kind of know these things and understand all of these ramifications for different things. Um, and be able to run scenarios when they're talking about at the beginning of the book, him and Cole, the new 31 agent who recruits him for this mission about where and what will happen if the Klingon Empire is not stabilized um, and that the Romulans would basically eat that up and then they would come after the Federation and that, of course, Bashir, he's already run all these numbers in his head. He can already know that this is something that might happen. Um so I really think that this book does a fantastic job of getting us inside of what it means to be a genetically engineered person for both sides, from the crazy to Bashir, who is always um, tempted to want to rule in some ways. You know, that idea of absolute power corrupting absolutely – Bashir does such a fantastic job of fighting against that. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like Bashir wants to rule? Because I don't know. I've never really gotten that impression from him, although I can certainly see how having that uh, mental power being enhanced 
um, knowing that you are smarter than everyone else, not, not thinking you're smarter than everyone else, like a lot of people do, you know, in our world today, but like knowing that, yes, I am literally smarter by many magnitudes than everyone else in this room, you would be tempted to feel like, you know, you want to be over everyone and you want to rule. And with Lachan, as, as we saw with Khan, with Lachan especially, I feel that that's what's driving him. Uh, there is a vengeance factor because of the destruction of the new Beijing facility with Lachan, but it feels more like he's just this maniac who wants to conquer the Alpha Quadrant. He wants to be the supreme ruler of everyone. Whereas with Bashir, I don't know, I never get the feeling that he ever would really want that. And so I wonder here when he runs in his head all of these scenarios and calculations, and he knows that, yes, okay, well, there could be the conflict between Romulans and Klingons, and then the Federation is currently weak, and then they're going to come in. And of course, Cole tells him that, yes, the, the greatest threat to the Federation right now is still the Borg. And that's what he says anyway. Do you feel that Bashir, as a doctor and someone who is really devoted to using his abilities that he's been given through genetic enhancement to help people, sees the possibility that by helping Lachan to create um, stronger humans through genetic engineering that ultimately what he's doing is not trying to rule the Alpha Quadrant, but is simply to try to better the lives of all the citizens of the Federation? Yeah, I think that's something that, I think that's the question that Bashir has to wrestle with. Um, of, you know, he, he, I don't think he wants to rule the universe. And, and obviously, uh, I, I, I think that that plays out in this book. His, his question is, but could we help people by, especially human beings, by starting to genetically enhance them in certain ways, and um, and and doing that in a way that's not harmful? And 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 it's interesting to note. We see, especially in Enterprise, you get the Genobulans who use genetic enhancements all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, they and and there's no problem with it in their society. But I, 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 what I noticed here is that in this book, too, and it reinforces this, is that Julian seems to be the only person that we run across genetically enhanced that's sane. Like That's true, yeah. Genetic enhancements always in the Star Trek universe seem to drive people towards this megalomania. And um, I don't know if it's just something that the, you know, it's always that as the writers, because we always have to show that as being bad. I, I don't know. Um, you know, and Bashir's the one holdout where we get to say he's the exception to the rule. And when we say exception, we mean exception because he's the only one that we've come across where they haven't turned into, you know, his, his friends. Um, and they haven't turned into a con. Right. At the beginning of this book, on the very, very first page, there's a quote, and it says, For every Julian Bashir that can be created, there's a Khan Singh waiting in the wings. And it's attributed to Starfleet Rear Admiral Bennett. And 
but but this suggests that you can create plenty of normal genetically enhanced people, but there also is going to be someone who takes it to an extreme and tries to attempt world domination. But like you just said, everyone else we see who's genetically engineered does seem to be, um, they're like an idiot savant in some area, right? And like, they, they can't function as a normal person. They can only do complex math problems or they have some ability and otherwise they they can't be part of society, whereas Julian has been able to. And it is an interesting point. I mean, it's definitely not realistic anyway that uh, if you were mm-hmm. to embark on genetic enhancement programs, you wouldn't end up with only one person who is able to handle that the way Julian is and everyone else would just be... Um, in their own world or turn into a sadistic killer like Lachan did in this story. There's an interesting scene where Ro, Tyranitar, and then the Ngave Kel are traveling and they come into this little grove uh, that's been overgrown and they find all of these bones oh, yes. um, around these trees right. and nails and it's it's a very like gritty scene. Uh, it's very uh, it's creepy and um, Ro asks why why would somebody do this because they realize these bones are children um, and he says isn't it obvious because he could he's talking about Lachan and he says because he could because he knew that whatever he had once been he no longer was um, because there was no one who could tell him he may not because it is what unchecked power will always do. And um, I just thought that this was really interesting. And, and this is really where um, Lockin is so much different than, than Bashir is that he is this kind of creepy and sadistic person who has no, who is amoral, really. There's, there's, there's no question about it. He's just amoral and evil because he doesn't, he doesn't believe that there's any right or wrong other than what he says is right and wrong. In fact, he even tells Esri that, you know, I'm above all of your your rules and your morality. I, I've I've cast off those shackles, basically. Uh, and the danger of thinking that we can, um, I don't know. Uh, to me, this is very much what happens when a person completely buys into and lives life according to a a worldview that there is nothing to be accountable to. Um, and uh, if you take a evolutionary and I think even atheistic worldview to its nth degree, that's where you end up is where he is. Um, and it's, it's, it's pretty scary. You end up where in a world where people have unchecked power because they don't believe in anything or anyone worth is worth anything but themselves. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would I would not equate atheism with that view because atheism doesn't mean that you don't believe in anything. But he clearly doesn't believe in any ethics. You know, you, I mean, you don't have to believe that you're accountable to a god somewhere in order to believe in something that holds you in check. 
to prevent you from doing this. I mean, you can be a atheist and still feel that you need to better society and you need to respect the rights of individuals and, and you need to do all the things that all normal people do. So I wouldn't equate it to that. But in this case, definitely it's what's happening to him is, yeah, there's no one to control it. And even beyond genetic engineering, which is the focus of this book, um, that quote from when they're in the grove and they find all the children who had been nailed to the trees and tortured, they find their remains. Um, but the quote about there was no one to tell him that it was wrong and he has unchecked power now, I think translates well, even just to today's world. I mean, if you look at what governments are doing and even in the United States, what the government is doing, and this isn't about political parties because this has been going on for a long time, but as rights get taken away um, and things become more and more unchecked, you have to be careful because ultimately when there's no one left to keep those in power in check, it's possible that you can end up with something like this. And you can look at other cultures around the world and see where that goes. And so that's a, a message in mm. this book that uh, I think is yeah. very timely even now. For sure. That doesn't even relate to genetic engineering. Luckily, there's a new Star Trek movie that has some of these themes in it. So just go oh. see it at your local theater. I've heard about that. I heard it comes out in August. Yeah, Star Trek in August, <laughs> For right? those of us in Japan, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, if you uh, a quick plug, if you haven't seen Star Trek Into Darkness yet, the themes that we're talking about here, you will see some of those in that movie. So go to your local theater. You know, as I was rereading this, I was thinking, like, it really sucks that I can't see this movie because I know... That I mean, I already know that, you know, that I know who John Harrison is. I've known him for a long time, even though I haven't seen the movie. And thank you, Kate. No, I, I knew long before that. I knew from other things. <laughs> <laughs> but, but of course, I don't know the actual story plot of how we get to that. But, but knowing that as I was reading this book, I was thinking it's really too bad I can't see this movie yet because I know there are a lot of things that we could tie together between what's going on here and what's in the new movie, but we can't talk about them because I have not seen the film. So, Yeah, I've just been holding my tongue because of that, <laughs> yes, Chris, I so I don't want to ruin anything for you. But, uh, you know, uh, one of the things, too, that, Chris, that uh, we talked about just a little bit, but um, some of the things that we picked up on, it, just how well this book connected to what we read in Avatar. Um, you know, this is a continuing series, it, but this is where this series really started to feel like it was a season of a show yeah. and it was the season of Deep Space Nine because we were picking up plot points and they were so beautifully maneuvered in this. You know, we talked about the core. Um, Nog has created this great, brilliant plan to move Empok Nor to Deep Space Nine so that they can take the fusion core from it and put it underneath deep space nine now um and that comes directly from what we saw in avatar mm -hmm. and then of course uh you had the 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 storyline of figuring out a little bit more in this book about who vaughn is and what his motivations are um and who his relationship with some of these characters uh on deep space nine already is a fantastic um and then, of course, uh, really, 
to developing the character of uh, Esri, who had started off, you know, um, as the counselor on Deep Space Nine, and you know, after Avatar, moves into command, and really throughout this book, learning to integrate her hosts even more helpfully for herself. I mean, she's she's just finding a way to make them work for her in a way that she wasn't able to do before. Um, which is really interesting to watch that process, especially since, you know, we've only seen Trill who have always been um, trained to be joined and all of this. And she's having to go through it, you know, by the seat of her pants. And, and I think that's a, actually a really interesting progression to watch as this series goes on. Right. Yeah. They we've complained. I've complained anyway, a little bit in the past about the portrayal of the relationship between Bashir and Ezri and it being a bit childish. And then we came to the conclusion that maybe it makes sense that it's been portrayed as a bit childish because in a way they're both people who are searching for who they are, you know, Bashir trying to come to terms with the fact that he's genetically enhanced and he's tired of hiding that from people. You know, he mentions in this book, an example of being in university and having to sit in the library and pretend like he's really studying and reading the same page over and over, even though he's already memorized the complete page just so he'll fit in. So he's trying to figure out, you know, who he is. And then of course, Esri, as you just said, not being trained to be a joint trill, having to figure out who she is. They both in some respects emotionally are in a developmental stage. And so when they get into that relationship, maybe it makes sense that it feels kind of immature or childish for their ages from what we might consider a normal relationship. But in this book, I feel like we are starting to see that progression and we are starting to see that that relationship between Bashir and Esri is feeling more normal to me now. It's feeling more like a real relationship between a man and woman who, um, again, are in the early stages of uh, being together. And they're still not sure if they're compatible and if they're on the right path, but their interactions seem more real to me. And it's easier for me in this book compared to the previous ones to get in the middle of that and kind of follow what's going on between the two of them and and associate myself with that as well in my past experiences. And I completely agree with you on that. I, I think that uh, w- what makes this um, really start to work, I think, in this book um, is that they're trusting each other. You know, they're not jumping down each other's throats or jumping to all these conclusions all the time about what the other person's thinking or whatnot. They they really seem to be um, learning the lesson of listening to each other and learning who the other person is like uh, there's a scene where they are in captivity and Locken has taken them captive and Esri realizes that if she pushes Julian he's he's going to clam up she says to him just just very nicely I, I need to talk about something and, and he says what do you need to talk about and and they they have an actual adult type of conversation there and then as Bashir takes that conversation in a direction she does not think it's going to go she doesn't freak out at him um, because then, of course, Locken comes in and then she finds out that he's been hiding a comm badge the whole time and she, he hands it to her and she realizes that 
he's he's playing you know Lockin. Um, and just that whole interaction would have gone differently, I think, if this had been in, you know, a scene we had seen in Avatar, whereas this book, you can tell that they've grown as a couple and, and just as characters. And that's that's just really good writing again here. And so I, I really enjoyed that. Um, although I did catch uh, a little faux pas. There's an early scene in the book where uh, they've been packing for their trip and Julian comes over. Um, and it says something about Esri sitting on the tile on the floor in Deep Space Nine. Uh-huh. There's there's no tile in in, in the crew quarters. Um, it, it's all carpeted. Well, um, maybe she had tile installed. Maybe she, you know. Well, she, yeah, maybe she, or, or hardwoods. She, you know, she, she had her special really nice. uh, sculpting station built there in in the bathroom. Oh, that, that's so. true. She she, yeah. Who knows? Maybe they finally figured out. As um, we often, when we look at American houses, we wonder about this. They finally figured out that it doesn't really make sense to put carpet in a bathroom. And and so they, they got the carpet out and they put <laughs> tile in instead. Because uh, why do you want to carpet the floor right next to a bathtub where it's going to get wet all the time? Uh, yeah, um, I just buy one of those nice little rugs that goes right in front of you know that I can wash and keep clean you know <laughs> so yeah I I don't I don't understand that either Chris but well before we kind of uh, wrap up anything else Chris that you just really liked about this book or was there anything that you thought you know I got to this part and I was like eh, I don't know about this well you know I do find Tyranitar interesting in this Deep Space Nine reboot because. When he first appeared in Avatar and we found out he was going to stay, I thought, man, it's kind of weird to have a Jim Hadar as part of the crew of Deep Space Nine, just like on Voyager when they bring Seven on. It's like, hey, we're going to have a Borg as part of the crew. You know, we have our greatest enemy up to this point becoming a member of our crew. But, you know, I'm finding that Tyranitar gives the writers the ability to introduce some interesting areas of exploration into the stories. And one that happened in here, kind of unexpectedly for me as I went through, was the conversation that Tyranitar had with the first. Now, in the story, Lachan is breeding a Jim Hadar. He's trying to create an army that he can then use, you know, to to conquer the Alpha Quadrant. Uh, when the fir- when Tyranitar is captured and the first starts questioning him, they get it in this conversation talking about the founders and whether they are mortal or whether they are gods. And it uh, allows them to explore, you know, we're used to in Deep Space Nine exploring some aspects of religion or spirituality through the Bajorans. And we've never really thought about it I don't think in depth where the Jim Hadar, the Vord of the founders are concerned. You know, it's more like, well, the founders created the Jim Hadar. So the Jim Hadar see and the Vorda see the founders as gods, but in their sense, like they, they know they were created by these other beings, but it doesn't necessarily make those beings gods. But, you know, Tyranitar starts to question this himself. The first starts to question it. It's part of what helps 
the first and the Jem'Hadars that Lachan had created to turn on Lachan, which was really important you know, to the resolution. And at one point, the first in confronting Lachan says that perhaps you are our God, but if you are, then you must be a weak God because you have had to use the white to keep us faithful. And for me, that gets me thinking about all sorts of belief systems and about um, what mechanisms are used to convince people to believe in certain things or to help them to continue to believe in certain things. But within this story, if we jump to the end of the story, and this is something you and I were talking about before the show, is that Tyranitar then goes back to the station and he seeks advice from a very unlikely source, especially if you go back to the beginning of this book and consider the interactions that he had with Kira. And at the end of the story, he's going back to Kira and he's asking Kira for advice on faith. And it's something that you never would expect from a Jim Hadar. Yeah, I, I really liked this conversation. It's something that I had highlighted and um, I, I love what uh, Kira says. She says, um, it's become my belief of late that the prophets have no use for blind devotion. They want us to, they want us, their people, to question our beliefs every day because the only way for our faith to grow stronger is by having it challenged. And uh, I really liked what she had to say because if your faith cannot be challenged, then it, it's a weak faith. And and that's what I think is so interesting when you, uh, we think about the idea of the founders, the Vorda, and the Jem'Hadar. It's a weak faith because the founders are not gods. They are just people who genetically engineered beings, um, you know, to serve them. And that's why they don't want anyone of those beings challenging them. Whereas something like the prophets um, are much readier to be challenged by, say, Bajorans or, say, the Cisco um, throughout the story because they have nothing to lose by being challenged by them. Well, plus the prophets are not, I don't think the prophets are pretending to be gods either of the Bajorans. The Bajorans just believe that they are their gods, but the prophets are not viewing the situation the same from their side. They're not trying to control the Bajoran people. No. Uh, well, and and yeah, I don't know necessarily if, you know, I don't think being a god means that you're, um, you're necessarily controlling your people. I think that it means you love your people. Um, and uh, the, the prophets definitely have a... a, a relationship with Bajor right. that goes beyond we're, we're trying to control these people we are they obviously care about them and, and they're putting a, a lot into leading the Bajoran people into hopefully peace and prosperity right um, yeah. and uh, so yeah that is just a really interesting thing and this was a this is one of those things like you said who would have thought that um, you would get this kind of conversation between you know Kira and a Jim Hadar about faith and it, you know at the very end of the book it's it's a very poignant moment and uh, it's well written and uh again it, you know there's like 15 pages after this so this is very close to the end of this book and something so big that's really what stuck with me this whole time uh you know um 
is this conversation. Mm-hmm. I think it's uh it's a great place to leave you. Well, and it, and it shows a journey for a character that we didn't expect to go on a journey because at the beginning of the book, Tyranitar and Kira are having their conversation and Kira is telling him, you know, don't kill anyone unless you have to. I'm giving you a choice. Do you want to go on this mission? If you don't, you can refuse. And Tyranitar is like, I don't understand this concept of choice. Look, Odo sent me here to serve you. If you tell me to go, I'm going to go. And also, he doesn't really understand why he might avoid killing someone. But Kira told him not to. And so when he has an opportunity to kill someone, I mean, he does kill a lot of people, of course, a lot of Jemadar in the story. But he also avoids killing a few times, which goes against his instinct, but it's what Kira told him to do. Uh, but he's very much the rigid Jim Hadar at the beginning, and then he goes through this experience, and then when he comes back to the station, the book closes with the conversation with Kira once again, and you can see that something has really changed in this character over the course of the story. And, and that's another thing that I find very DS9 about this story. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I think that this is is a, is a very good and worthy addition to um, you know our eighth season of Deep Space Nine uh, in the in the literary universe. Um, you know, it was these kind of stories that that really helped me know that this was going to continue the tradition of of Deep Space Nine well and make me want to continue to read these books. Um, I, I will say. I wish the quality had stayed this good every single book, but, you know, as with episodes uh, of a show, they're not all going to be fantastic. Sometimes you're going to get a Times Orphan, and uh, <laughs> so, yeah, it, it's just going to happen. So, or um, talking about Enterprise, you're going to get an extinction, which I just saw exactly. the other day, and oh my goodness. Oh, gosh. Oh, man, or Terra Nova. Um Oh, Terra Nova is fantastic <laughs> compared to Extinction. So, <laughs> man. Oh, man. But uh, all in all, I, I highly recommend this book. I think it's fantastic. If you haven't, um, you know, gotten into the Deep Space Nine relaunch, you know, we're very shortly into that. You know, we've only read three books now, so you can catch up with us by the time we do our next one. This is fantastic. This is great stuff. Um, and if you have seen all of Deep Space Nine, it's so worth it to go and see what these writers do with these characters. You know, even um, David R. George III uh, has talked about, you know, he's such a fan. He just, he loves seeing what happens next with these characters, whether he writes it or not. So I highly recommend this. Yeah, it's excellent. Um, and of course, we've talked about various things that happen in the story. And I mean, if you have listened to this, and you haven't yet read the book, uh, I think we did a pretty good job, Matthew, of not really giving away the plot and everything that happens along the way. We talked about some specific incidents that happened, but I think you'll still really enjoy reading the book and seeing uh, how they get from point A to point B. And, mm, um, definitely. and there are some other character moments in there that we haven't even brought up. So a uh, very good book. I really enjoyed it. So this is, again, the third book in the relaunch. And so far, three great books. And uh, on a future Literary Treks, we'll be diving into the next one. Well, Matthew, I've really enjoyed talking Deep Space Nine with you here and uh, talking about Dr. Bashir. 
And uh, let's tell everyone where they can find us if they would like to contact us and share their thoughts on anything in news today or their thoughts on Abyss or on the Deep Space Nine relaunch. You can go to trek.fm slash contact and there's a form there. Choose to send to a show and choose Literary Treks and that'll come to us. You can also go over to the forums at trek.fm slash forums and you can join in a conversation with other listeners and us as well. There is a section for literary treks. There's also one for books and uh, we'd love to talk to you there. If you're on Facebook, you can find us at facebook.com slash trek.fm and of course you'll find us on Twitter under username trek.fm. Matthew, if listeners would like to pick your brains about Star Trek books, not eat your brains, okay? No zombie stuff going on here. Uh, No Vulcan zombies from the Expanse. Nothing like that. Uh, They just want to talk to you about Star Trek books. Where should they go? Well, as long as they aren't, you know, some sort of space zombies or whatever. I learned the rules for zombies from Zombie Land. So first rule was cardio. Second rule was double tap. You're not coming back <laughs> if you're coming after me as a zombie. Just saying. Um, Chris, if you do want to find me, though, on the interwebs, uh, you can find me at Twitter, at MattRushing02. Talking all sorts of things right now. Uh, of course, Star Trek Into Darkness, if you want to talk about that. I loved it. Um, that's just my quick review. Uh, if you want to know more, I've got plenty of things on my own blog you can check out. As well as wrote the re- review on Trek FM for Star Trek Into Darkness. Um also, uh, check us out on The Orb, where we do Deep Space Nine all the time. It's me and Chris talking Deep Space Nine. You're going to love the show. Just go there. And lastly, do the book reviews. Got the newest books coming out soon. Into Darkness, the audiobook review, and then The Folded World will be coming out soon as a review as well. Keep looking for those. Chris, as long as there aren't any zombies coming for you, where can we find you? Yeah, I want to steer clear from the zombies myself. I'm not a, I don't really feel like uh, having my brains eaten out right now. But if you would like to pick my brain about Star Trek, you can find me on Twitter. My username is C Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. And you can find me pretty much everywhere on social media under that username. If you're playing Star Trek Rivals card game, you can even find me under that name on there too. And um, you can find me elsewhere on the network, as Matthew just mentioned, doing the orb each week, but also doing the ready room where we do talk about Deep Space Nine. In fact, we talk about all five live action Star Trek series as well as the films. We've actually done all the films now. Uh, Matthew, Tristan, Shar, and Lori did Into Darkness for us last week with without me, since I couldn't see it. So um, check that out as well. And if you like the show, if you like Literary Treks, any of our shows, hop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. We'd love to hear from you there, and it'll help other people find the show. And lastly, we'd like to invite you to support our sponsor, Squarespace. Squarespace is absolutely the best platform for building a personal blog, a website, a portfolio, or an online store. You get the web's best CMS and the best hosting all in one. Starts at $8 a month. And as a Trek FM listener, you can save 10% on your lifetime purchase on all new accounts. Just go to squarespace.com trek and use offer code TREK5 to get your discount well thanks everyone for joining us and until next time live long read on you call that light reading to each his own number one